Thank you for tuning into Radio Never Apart. I'm your host, Jordan Kane. Okay, kids, this episode is a fast-paced dive straight into the art and underground theater world of New York in the 1970s. My guest is Tony Zanetta, who has worn many, many hats since he landed in New York around 1969. Tony has hung out with some very recognizable names, including, ahem, David Bowie, and some less recognizable but very influential folks as well, like Jane Candy, Candy Darling, and International Crisis. We quickly touch on another podcast in our interview called Main Man, which is all about a record label Tony Zanetta worked for in the 1970s. If you're interested in learning more about the music industry at that time, I would definitely suggest checking that out, and I will include a link in the show notes. For now, though, listeners, buckle up. This is a fun interview. Good morning. Good morning. My beautiful friend, how are you? <laughs> I'm so good. Tony's and out of here. We are finally. I was dreaming of this for so long. Well, I'm delighted to be here with you. Okay, so we're we're talking today. This is Radio Never Apart. I'm speaking with Tony Zanetta. Hi. Incredible Tony Zanetta, uh, who we first connected over Facebook, I think, originally, as I was yes. putting together an exhibition last summer. And I had known about you for quite some time through, I mean, I guess through some of the different New York City connections um, and that you'd been a big part of the nightlife world in the 1980s. Well, our big connection was the international International crisis. crisis. (laughs) And that was uh, that was what allowed us to first like have a conversation. We had a little FaceTime chat last summer and I've been starting to kind of gather all this information. I was getting ready to put put together this exhibition. Uh, I mean, what a joy. And then I also had listened to the interview you did on the Main Man podcast talking about your work in the recording industry in the early 1980s. That's stretching it a little, but yes, okay, I was involved with Main Man. Is it? Well, what was the? Okay, so let's so let's let's dial it all the way back to the beginning for the listeners here joining. Um, tell tell people a little bit about yourself, Tony. What's your story? Well, I'll give you a little background on how I ended up at Main Man. Okay, which was. You know, um, first of all, I grew up in upstate New York, all the way west, very, very Midwestern, actually. New York State isn't all Eastern. You know, if you go further, far enough west, you're really in the Midwest. Yeah. We were closer to Ohio, certainly, than than to New York City. Yeah. And I lived in Buffalo for a little while. I went to art school. And then I came to New York when I was 20. But really what I wanted to do was be an actor. Okay. So, but I I kind of... um, but really, if I'm really going to tell the truth, you know, my, my journey to New York was really to be a gay boy mm-hmm. because uh, that's what we did in the 60s. We, if, in the 60s, if you were gay, that kind of became your vocation. Yeah. You know, you were kind of, um, if you were going to be out and, and you were going to live as a gay person, um, it took a certain amount of commitment because you kind of threw everything else away. Mm-hmm. Or at least I did. Yeah. I don't know about other people. So, so I re- I wanted to be an actor, but first and foremost, I wanted to be a gay boy. 
So I came to New York and, and proceeded to become a gay boy. I didn't quite have the confidence or the know-how to go about how to do any kind of acting. Hmm. Um, but I did have the know-how to become a gay boy. <laughs> that must have come very naturally, maybe. Yeah, it came pretty naturally. Well, I had a good teacher. I had this roommate in college that was incredible, Tom Carberry. Hmm. Tom was really handsome and really smart and funny and a great artist. Hmm. So he kind of was my gay life mentor. Okay. And and this leads into actually the rest of my life in a way cuz Tom grew up in Massapequa, Long Island. Okay. Along with a guy named Tony Ingrassia who mm. I would meet and Tony Ingrassia would be the writer and director that I would end up working with a lot. And with a boy named Jimmy Slattery who was about to become Candy Darling. So wow. I was up in Buffalo hearing stories about Candy and Tony Mm. Candy was already a legend. She was like 19 years old, but Tom would fill me in about Candy. And then when I came to New York, one of the first people I met in Massapequa with Tom was Tony Ingrassia. Tony Ingrassia was like a really charismatic, he was really tall, very, very heavy. He still weighed about 400 pounds. Mm. In Massapequa, he was known as Fat Anthony. Mm. But he had already been doing stuff off, off Broadway. He had written some stuff, and he was part of the Playhouse of the Ridiculous. And he was very friendly with Candy and would also become very friendly with Jackie Curtis. He was one of Jackie's first directors. Wow, okay. He directed Jackie Curtis's play Femme Fatale. He directed Wayne County's play World Birth of a Nation in 1970. And, that's, and I was in World Birth of a Nation. I went to the audition for World Birth of a Nation. Hmm. 1970 and that was the beginning of my whole entree into this world of downtown insanity and and ridiculous and the playhouse of the ridiculous and meeting all these people going to max's kansas city i met i met crisis at around the same time we didn't become friends until like another 15 years wow okay and i met in aa we became best friends and alcoholics anonymous okay she was absolutely stunning and certainly um, self-obsessed. However, as vain as she was and as narcissistic as she was, she always had time to help somebody. Hmm. You know, she would bring these little queens to AA meetings at seven thirty in the morning. Her, her phone line, her phone was always available. She was always available. She hmm. had a lot of people sober. She she was a very giving person. Yeah, but you wouldn't think of if you just saw this gorgeous icy image walking across a stage or the screen or whatever she was an she was really a one-of-a-kind person yeah i think about her all the time because i've never known anyone quite like crisis she was very very unique yeah and uh, lots of fun Anyway, I got sidetracked on crisis. What a star. I mean, oh my goodness. Well, as you know, I mean, I'm doing some I'm doing some work and gathering all this kind of stuff and, you know, I think she's really due for like her story to be told because of how dynamic she is. So, I mean, you know, that's a little project I've got kind of in the in the cooker. That's in the back burner, but I'm also here to talk to you today. I'm here to hear all about your story because this downtown New York theater world in the 1970s, you know, Jackie Curtis, Theater of the Ridiculous, Candy Darling. I mean, what a what an energetic time in New York City and just in the sort of theater and the performance world, right? It absolutely was. I mean, I, th- I guess we lived a lot in, in, you know, we were young. Mm-hmm. We lived a lot in fantasy. 
we um, um, it was all uh, also very much part of the Warhol world and mm-hmm. factory. We all we all wanted to be part of the factory, and we really believed the superstars were superstars. Mm-hmm. And we didn't really care about money. We were none of us were in, 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 involved in trying to make money. Mm-hmm. I mean, our idea of success—I don't know—it was like a two-week run at La Mama. Or being recognized when you walked into Max's Kansas City. Yeah. It didn't go that I mean, not for all of us. There were certainly people on the scene that were more calculating, like maybe like uh, Patty Smith or mm. Robert Maple. You know, there were people that were more that were more savvy, but most of us were kind of um uh, naive in, in a way. Yeah. Uh, um, um and then like Candy was such a great example of totally living your fantasy mm-hmm. because those of us who are around, you know, we didn't look at candy as male or female. Mm-hmm. And the idea of trans, transgender didn't even exist. There were transsexuals, but we didn't consider candy a transsexual candy was living a film star fantasy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So being around when we related to candy as if she was a movie goddess Mm. That was what candy was about. It wasn't really even about sexuality at all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, uh, <laughs> Jackie was totally different. And that ja- Jackie said to me once, she said, uh, uh, when they say Jackie Curtis, I don't want them to say, who is Jackie Curtis? I want them to say, what? Is Jackie Curtis? <laughs> <laughs> I think Jackie Curtis accomplished that to some extent. I mean, what a legend! Well, Jackie was pretty special. All, yeah. all you had to do was see Jackie walk across the stage, and you would be pretty much become a Jackie country. Because Jackie was really, really talented, had mm. incredible stage presence, incredible timing. Um, Jackie was was the real deal. Except, of course, she threw it all away with drugs and alcohol. You know. Yeah, I find Jackie to be a really tragic story because we didn't get to see one tenth of Jackie's talent or what Jackie could have done. Hmm. Jackie died of an OD at around the age of what thirty six, thirty seven, maybe hmm. thirty eight. Hmm. But um, and his work was kind of, I think he was most productive certainly in his early twenties. But as the drug addiction took took over. Uh, he didn't fulfill his potential. That's my 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 uh, take on Jackie. Yeah, but I had. Um, um, well, I'm, 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 I feel incoherent today because I'm skipping around so much. <laughs> no, it's okay. I mean, so so you moved to New York City in 1970. Well, 1970 was when you basically sort of thrust yourself into this theater performance world. And did you move to New York um, to go to school, or you did art school in Buffalo? <laughs> No, I had a little job, and then I had a boyfriend, and uh, I, I was going to go to school. Yeah, I took some courses at night, but that didn't last very long. Hmm. So I didn't. Do, no, I didn't do much school. But by 1969, I decided I really wanted to do acting. So I, I found an acting class that was like the closest to where I lived. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Menino's Drama Tree. <laughs> Whatever that was. But it was good. It got me in. You know, it was like taking an action. So I started yeah. moving in that direction. And then I started buying backstage and show business and going to auditions. Yeah. And I I, uh, I, I got a summer stock internship, huh. which was actually pretty good. I went to uh, someplace called Cecil with Summer Theater in Fishkill, New York. 
it was great because you got to do everything from lights to cleaning the bathrooms to being on stage. Huh. And when I came back that from that summer, which was 1969, again, I bought the trade paper and there was an ad for a, for a company in the South Bronx called South Bronx Community Action Theater. Oh. It was federally funded and it, it was a repertory company and it had a salary, it was non-equity. And you and you you toured schools in the South Bronx. Wow! And I got hired. That was a fantastic experience. Oh, bad! So now I'm a working actor. Suddenly in 1969, we rehearsed every day, and then we performed in the schools. It was really a fantastic experience, and it was children's theater basically, which was kind of my forte because I was a, I was not like. You know, I was like, I like things to be big and broad and over the top, which was the same thing as what the ridiculous style of acting was. Yeah. Ridiculous style is like really big, not realistic. It was like anti-realism, anti-Stanislavski. It was nothing to do with that. Hmm. It was spectacle and really big. Hmm. And so shortly after that, during that time, I went to see a production of a play called Nightclub by... Um, it was directed by John Beccaro. It was the Playhouse of the Ridiculous. Mm. And I sat in that theater. I went by myself. And all I wanted to do was like, jump on the stage with them because it was so incredible. Mm. Penny Arcade, who's still a performance artist, was in it was in nightclub. And I still remember her like rolling her little... She was kind of a little bit chubby, Penny. Always had big tits and a little, little corpulent. She had rolled from one side of the stage to the other. <laughs> the lilies are in bloom. Made no sense. But because John always had choruses. And he had like a... Almost like Greek theater with a chorus. Huh. He had all these people on the stage that really weren't part of the action, but they were like, he, he insisted that they upstage each other and, and constant movement. And it's what kind of gave his theater a really distinctive quality because it was almost like, like abstract expressionism on stage. It was colorful and beautiful and all of this movement in back of this play, which was sometimes made sense, sometimes didn't make sense, mm-hmm. but it was kind of a backdrop for the play. Um, and so that was in the fall of, that was in the summer of 1970. And, and shortly after that, again, I'm, I'm used to reading the state, the, the showbiz paper, papers backstage and, and um, show business. And Tony and Gracia was casting for World Birth of a Nation, which was a play by Wayne, not yet Jane, she was Wayne, hmm. Wayne County. Excuse me. So I went to the audition, and Tony remembered me from the meeting in Massapequa, and immediately said, "Darling, you don't have to audition for my play. Of course, you can be it." But Tony was like really known for like nudity on stage, and I thought, well, "I don't want. To, I don't know if I want to be naked, uh, like a naked boy in his play." But I was like, "Oh, whatever." But he. But I didn't have to play. But I didn't have to take my clothes off. <laughs> <laughs> I played two roles. Dr. Louise Pasteur and Jefferson Davis. (laughs) (laughs) And in this play was not only Wayne, but Kathy Doherty, who would become known as Cherry Vanilla, 
And Lee Black Childers was the stage manager. Mm. Uh, Jamie DiCarlo Lotz, who had worked with The Ridiculous a lot, was in the play. And they would become the core of my life for the next, like, for basically for the rest of my life. We mm. would become all best friends, and we would go on to do a lot of other things together. Mm. Um, this next thing we did was Andy Warhol's play Pork. Mm. That was directed by Tony. Andy contacted um, Tony. because What Pork was, was, was tape-recorded conversations. Hmm. The, in, the, in the late 60s and early 70s, and if you read any of Andy's books, like A to B and Back Again, um, they're all about, they're all from tapes. Uh, a, the, his novel A, was a tape session of Undine, the superstar Undine, Undine. A to B, uh, back again, has a lot of tapes between Andy and Bridget Berlin, Bridget Polk. Hmm. And the play was mostly tapes, mostly taken from recorded conversations on the phone between Andy and Bridget. Hmm. But also, the, the trend was, because the tape recorder was new, the little cassette player was new. Yeah, and the and the and the attachment to put it onto your phone so that you could record conversations was new. It was a real novelty, hmm. and certain people really dove into that novelty and did it constantly. Like Andy was one of them. Hmm. So, and Bridget was the other one, and 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 so the play was some of Andy's tapes, but also a lot of them were Bridget's tapes. Hmm. He would pay her like twenty five dollars a tape. So he had hundreds of these tapes. And did people know they were being recorded, do you think? Or was that... No, they didn't know. That. <laughs> Absolutely not. No, nobody knew. That. He sometimes, sometimes people would catch on, but no, people did not know they were being recorded. Wow. So they would say the most outrageous things about each other, especially. Oh, my this gosh. Group, you know, the, the 60s and 70, early 70s was different in New York. It was very dishy. Everybody was very dishy. Hmm. Very, very dishy. And very... Um, they did a lot of amphetamines. Right. And that could just be anything from like a diet pill to a heavier drugs. But if you were on amphetamines, it created a certain kind of personality, like very speedy. You talk very fast. And, yeah. and you could be kind of easily going to vicious mode. Mm. Hmm. Even if you didn't do those drugs, that was kind of a, a cloud. <laughs> The culture a little bit. personality cloud that huh. hovered over New York. Wow. And listen to the Velvet Underground. Listen to early Lou Reed and you get a good idea. Yeah. Uh, what were his songs? Vicious, uh, New York Telephone Conversation, Candy Says. Right. But there's a lot of that kind of um, nastiness. Yes. Shall I say? So the play was a lot of that, too. Huh. And so Andy took all these, he, he gave all these tapes, well, they transcribed the tapes okay. and gave them to Tony and Gracia, hundreds of hours of them though. And so Tony and Gracia then edited them. He cut them down and picked certain tapes and assembled them into what would become a play, quote unquote. Wow. Um, really, it was a performance piece yeah. and, and really very conceptual. You know, it's interesting. Totally. What makes a play? Can you take a conversation from life and transcribe it and put it on the stage? Is that a play? Warhol's you know, whole artistic thing of what is a painting? What is a book? What is a play? And, and the same thing of like, you know, taking a, a, 
photograph of a, a flower and creating a silk screen out of it, like, you know, embellishing the colors a little bit, maybe prettying it up and then giving it back to us as a painting. Well, this was the same thing. It's taking a conversation from life, putting it on stage, prettying it up a little bit. And okay, this is a play now. So we did it at La Mama. And it was pretty sensational. Everybody wanted to see poor because mm-hmm. every, any, any, everybody was interested in everything that Andy Warhol was doing. Mm-hmm. And at the time, he was having a big retrospective at the Whitney. Mm-hmm. This play was at La Mama. And and uh, Women Be, Women in Revolt was supposed to open the same week, but it didn't. It wasn't quite ready yet. Mm-hmm. So the idea was the movie, play, and big museum show all at the same time. <laughs> Talk about a cross-pollination, like, branding extravaganza. I mean, yeah, people totally. nowadays are, like, totally. trying to rip that kind of idea totally. off to get all that stuff happening at the same time. And, and then Jackie, wow. at the same time, was doing Vain Victory, a play that she's, she became really well-known for, Vain, Vain Victory. And if you don't know anything about Vain Victory, you have Google it, because there's a lot of, there's some, there's some uh, excerpts of Vain Victory on YouTube that are really pretty fabulous. Huh. And you get an idea. You'll see uh, Candy singing. Eric Emerson was in Vain Victory. You'll see little bits of Vain Victory that are great. You can also see little bits of Femme Fatale on YouTube. Wayne County, Patti Smith, Penny Arcade, Jackie, they're all in Femme Fatale. And those plays, uh, Femme F- Jackie's plays and Wayne County's plays, were montages. They were like cut and pasted together. So some of it was like song titles or lyrics or or um, uh, scenes from movies. But it was all cut and pasted together to create a play. Wow. <laughs> um, they were pretty interesting works, actually. And then in Gracia, I had a, and Gracia was a really good director, but he had pretty far out ideas, a lot of fun. He would insert all sorts of crazy things on top of all of this nonsense anyway to create these plays um so anyway we, we ended up going to london to do pork uh we couldn't they couldn't get a produce they wanted to produce it on broadway i don't know if it would have ever gone on broadway but if there was a guy he was an art dealer and he came to la mama to see the play he was andy's art dealer in london he was he wasn't a theatrical producer but he wanted to bring the play to london and produce it in london and he did Harvey Firestein was also in Pork. He he was that was his, he was like seventeen years old, right out of high school. It was the first thing he ever did. Wow! And he played the lesbian maid. <laughs> <laughs> Jerry Miller was in Pork. Jerry Miller was a Warhol superstar. She was the only true superstar in the play. Jerry was in Flesh and Trash. She's the topless go-go dancer in in those movies. And she really was a topless go-go dancer. Um, Pretty wacky, gorgeous body. Um, She was actually brilliant in the plays. And Gracia, like, directed her every breath, practically. And she had a really kind of sweet comedic quality about her that, that transferred pretty well on stage. Anyway, off we went to London. And but while before we left for London, that spring, in Rolling Stone magazine, there was a little article about this guy named David Bowie. He he had been in um, the United States doing like a little promotional tour, mm. and it caught our attention, especially Wayne's and Lee's and mine, because he was a guy. He was wearing a dress. 
But he also was talking about his wife and kid. So he's got a wife, he's got a kid, and he's wearing a dress, which he called a man's dress, and a little bit of makeup. Mm. Uh, not a lot of makeup, but a little bit of, you know, just a little mess, a little bit, uh, a little bit of makeup. <laughs> and this is still, well, it's 71. Lee had done an article for a magazine called Rags called Boys Who Wear Makeup, something like Because boys did not wear makeup in 1970. Sure. But Lee did. Lee, by that time, had started bleaching his hair, which was pretty you know, outrageous for 1970 because in 1970, the hippie look was, you know, you, you had long hair and yeah. androgyny was acceptable, but Lee took it a way step further <laughs> by bleaching. And first he started with streaks and he always wore makeup. Hmm. I don't know if you even knew who Lee Childers was. Lee Childers, my dear friend, Lee Childers, um, was a photographer. And he became pretty well known for chronicling the whole downtown scene from starting with Jackie all through like major rock and roll stars, all through punk. He managed Johnny Thunders and the Heartbreakers for a while. He really created Levi and the Rock Hats in England hmm. in the mid seventies. So Lee's kind of a legend in, in certain rock and roll circles and just the most incredible guy. He also photographed, the wonderful international crisis really for i think it was club magazines by yeah. the way and, and again maybe this is just me maybe i was ignorant i don't remember ever hearing the word transgendered crisis used that word to describe herself yeah and i never ever heard any she's the first person i ever heard use that word yeah just to buy those, just to, just for your information. No, for sure. And I've heard that from somebody else because, I mean, she died in 1989 or 1990, right? And even if you sort of look up the history of the use of that word, it's not a word that's sort of recorded or documented even in like, you know, academic database until like the early no. 1990s. So it's like if it was a term that was being used prior to that, I mean, that's pretty groundbreaking. I think it's pretty incredible. I think so. I think so. And she certainly wasn't restricted in, like, the social circles she moved to. I mean, what, where would she be now if she were still alive? My gosh, I love to imagine what, what she might be doing. Well, what she said she was doing, and I don't know if she would have, is that she was, she was going to go through the chair and the curtain and take everybody with her. And kind of RuPaul did that. Yeah, she was talking about you know she was a trailblazer. Yeah, and she was going to take everybody with, and she was a trailblazer, no doubt. Yeah, she did make a major movie with Nick Nolte. Yes, um, she was on Broadway. She did all kinds of things, but it wasn't what even that stuff. It was in everyday life. She hmm. just presented herself as a crisis. Yeah, it wasn't. Yeah. You know, she was just totally herself. So mid-70s, you're still involved in, in theater. After Pork, you went to London, came back to New York. But you were still running in a lot of these sort of nightlife circles, right? Totally. Well, what happened in London was, well, the, the show was pretty much a smash in London. So mm. in London, in those days, you know, most of the British were pretty poor. Mm. So if you had like two cents to run, if you had enough money to go out, at night without having to take the tube home because the tube shut off at like 11 o'clock at night. Yeah. So if you went to a club, you probably, you pretty much met everybody that was in London. Like I met Sal Minio and Jill Hayworth and Barbara Parkins, who was the star of Peyton Place at the time. Hmm. Rod Stewart, we met. I mean, we met a lot of people, but we met David Bowie. 
because mm. David Bowie wanted to meet Andy, really. Mm. So David Bowie, and we all know who David Bowie was because of this little piece in Rolling Stone. So David Bowie and his wife Angie and the, his manager and his friend Danny Gillespie all came to see Pork. And I vaguely remember what happened, but basically he and I and Angie kind of hit it off. Mm-hmm. And we ended up going out a couple of times and I ended up going to their house and spending it. Anyway, we really kind of connected. And then a couple of weeks after we met and David Bowie had, had, hadn't, um, he hadn't, didn't have his RCA contract yet. Mm. So he was like, uh, hadn't done Ziggy Stardust. All of that was yet to come. Hmm. Hmm. So he was a little bit known in England, but he was not a superstar by any stretch of the imagination. Hmm. So he, uh, he, Shortly after Port closed, we went. I went back to New York. Two weeks later, David and his manager and Angie Bowie came to New York to to sign with RCA Records. Mm-hmm. And I was pretty. I, I remember just basically because I was the only person they knew in New York. They called me, and I started. I hung out with them the whole week. Mm-hmm. So we became all best friends. And I took him to the factory to meet Andy. Um, so that's like kind of a well-documented day. We went, had dinner a couple of nights, a night with Lou Reed. He met Iggy that week. We met Iggy at Max's and and Iggy ended up going to uh, the Warwick Hotel the next day for breakfast. And the manager signed Iggy that same day. So now Iggy was the man. So this is our main man. This is the beginning of main man. Okay. Kind of the main man family. It all revolved around David. But then after that week, Iggy was a part of the main man family. And then I became a part of the main man family, basically because I was their friend in New York. So anytime they needed anything done in New York, they would call me to go pick up records at the music, at the record company, or go do this, do that, whatever it was. Like, it was basically errands. But it was, because it was new, and because everything was, you know, I I just... I was there, and I started doing more and more and more and more and more hmm. until it became a real job, and I rented an apartment, and we set up an office, and blah, 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 blah. Yeah. But at the same time, in England, David was working on that. He, the, he did the Ziggy Stardust album, hmm. and then he started working on this whole idea of, like, performance, where he... Basically, he was an actor who then decided to play the role of Ziggy Stardust. Yeah. And they started doing these shows with David as Ziggy Stardust. And immediately it was like caught on. Mm-hmm. And people were like, because everybody thought that was David, Ziggy Stardust. Yeah. And we began to believe that was David too. Anyway, that's another story. Totally. And you know what? Think about too how many of these recording artists over the last 30 years have essentially created these personas. And then they're, you know, Mar- I mean, any of them, right? It's like Madonna, Lady Gaga, like they're sampling from a ton of different right. cultures and they're creating exactly. this performance persona. And it's not maybe really, I mean, is it them? Is it not them? You could debate it for a million years. But nobody and- had really done it consciously yeah. before him. Hmm. That was very conscious, very deliberate. It was really Brechtian theater. Yeah. Because what he was doing was saying, this is a rock star. Yeah, presenting it. wasn't him. He was presenting a rock star. Yeah. Huh. And and it was very successful. But But 
I got totally swept up in it because it went really kind of fast. Mm. So these little errands turned into like bigger errands and more stuff. You know, it was like it was literally like a tire rolling down the hill. Yeah. It just caught tra- traction. So suddenly I'm in England and I'm on the road with them. And then we're back in New York. We're getting ready for an American tour. Anyway, that ended up being the next few years of my life was being a part of Maine Man. I brought my friends with me, Lee Black Childers. Gotcha. Cherry Vanilla became an integral part of it. I got involved in rock and roll and Maine Man through my friendship with David and with his then manager, Tony DeFries. Gotcha. Actually, it got like, well, eventually the whole thing kind of blew up. But for me personally, it became, it was the same kind of thing. I was playing a role, mm. you know, and, and, it became less and less comfortable, actually. Mm. And so I really had to step away. And I didn't look at it that way. And I couldn't consciously leave it because it wasn't I supposed to want to be there. Yeah. But I hated the music business. It was awful. Yeah. And it really wasn't anything that I wanted to do. And I didn't like the person that I had become yeah. doing this. Um, it ended up falling apart. The whole company fell apart, basically. Mm. And I walked away and went back to theater. I went mm. back to working with the Playhouse of the Ridiculous and other underground theater companies. Yeah. Did a lot of stuff at La Mama with John Baccaro. I went to Amsterdam with John Baccaro. We did a play there. And I worked with another company called Time and Space Limited. And that, well, that was more late 70s, around 1980. But in the 80s, I started doing some nightclub stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, bring Crisis back in. I did. I started working with a group called Yellow, <clears throat> which was a Swiss group. Hmm. They had a big hit called I Love You, like in that brown, 1983, 84. Um, kind of whimsical. I, I, Dieter Meyer and Boris, somebody or other. They were from Switzerland. They were a lot of, a lot, Dieter was a lot of fun to work with. Hmm. And we were working on some ideas for some stuff, and he wanted to do, um, oh, we worked on a video for a song he was doing, and I helped him on that. And then he was wanted to premiere the video hmm. at Danceteria, which was a club in New York in the 80s. Of course. And he wanted me, <laughs> because of the ideas that we had been talking about for sets, for the show and all that, for his, for his, we were talking about video ideas and we were talking about creating this, this big video opera and all the sets and that, 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 visuals. So he wanted to do some of those ideas in the club. Hmm. And I said, oh, okay, I'll do it. I don't know, I don't know what I was thinking because I had never done anything like that. But I said, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I ended up doing it and I was lucky because I got I like, I had, I had got this guy who did sets at La Mama to help me. Mm. Otherwise, I don't, I don't I'd still be sitting there trying to figure out what to do. But I had the ideas, but he knew how to do it. And I had a costume designer from La Mama, too, make me some stuff. We turned the columns into palm trees. I mean, it was actually beautiful by the time we got done with it. It was fantastic. So from that, Diane Brill from Danceteria and Rudolph, they were married at the time. Oh, wow. Rudolph I didn't know that. Rudolph the club. Yeah. Began to hire me to do other parties. So we did... Um, I'm trying to remember what was the first one. Oh, she was doing, there was that English group, Frankie Goes to Hollywood. Mm-hmm. And she was doing a big New York party for them. So I did the decor for the Frankie Goes to Hollywood. I would do the decors, but all my decors involved like showgirls, of course. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and if you thought of showgirl, who did you go to? 
the international crisis. crisis. Of course. This is another one of the ways that you and I connected was, you know, through talking about this show that you'd done at Danceteria and crisis was one of the sort of like the living statues, right? In that particular one, the Frankie goes to Hollywood party. Yeah, she was in that one. She was in the lust line. And what um, what are some of your memories, I guess, of New York nightlife during that time? I mean, this was like area, Danceteria, Tunnel. I mean, all these big clubs were... Yeah, it was interesting were... for me because, first of all, I was already a little older. I mean, I was in my 30s. I was in my late 30s. Hmm. I was sober. So I didn't really... I wasn't really into hanging out. Hmm. I liked doing these shows because they were because it was they were like theatrical. You know, they were my theatrical fantasies. I got to do all these... These ideas that I've been sitting around for years, uh, uh, for years, I got to actually do them. Yeah, and that was great fun. I loved that. There were some of the most fun things I ever did. But in terms of the clubs themselves, I didn't really. I guess I did go to quite a few, but I wasn't that into the scene that much. Hmm. Um, like the pyramid, I would go to once in a while, but I wasn't like part of that pyramid crowd. Or I didn't. I really didn't identify with. Like, I mean, it seemed like a lot younger scene, and I'd kind of already gone through that sure yeah but artistically i loved it that that was it was it, there were some of the my, my favorite things that i ever did these little these little so <laughs> like nightclub vignette, yeah for sure and there was like budgets right like they were putting money into some of those shows well they didn't pay much they paid i mean they would give me like 500 bucks a thousand bucks something like that huh. when i did that one show at uh um when i started doing shows at the tunnel again rudolph I kept kind of following Rudolph around. Mm. He was at, um, he went from Danceteria to the Palladium to the Tunnel. At the same time, like Suzanne Barch was starting, but she didn't, she didn't build sets. She just had all these fantastic people. Yeah. And she, she was more of a businesswoman than I was. I mean, she made money. Mm. Um, mm. I never made money doing it, uh, but I loved doing it. It was, it was a lot, a lot of fun. A lot of those clubs really did some interesting things, especially Danceteria, yeah. the Mud Club. Area was practically a museum. I mean, they, they really did spend money on their things. And did you stay involved in theater in the 80s, like the like the Hot Peaches or like any of that sort of underground theater well, that was still happening? I had been in the Hot Peaches earlier. Uh, I've been in the Hot Peaches in the late 70s. I did a show with them. I did a couple of shows. Jimmy Peach had a loft on Christopher Street. Hmm. Um, I did a couple of shows there, but I, I don't remember when that, I think that was still in the seventies. Yeah. And I was mostly, I, I was in the playhouse through, I didn't do that much after, I'm trying to remember, 80, 80, 82. Yeah. I was still doing stuff at 83, 84, 85, I think. Hmm. Last show I did with the play, it wasn't technically the playhouse, it was John Beccaro, it was 95. Um, I did a show last year with Taboo. Really? Um, yeah, uh, which I loved. To me, that was like going back to those days. Mm. I love Taboo's work. He's a wonderful artist. Yeah. And his theater, to me, is sort of like a living representation. It's like a living painting. Yeah. You know, um, um, and I was just thrilled to be a part of it. That was great, great, great fun. Huh. That was like a little over a year ago. And I did another thing. I did another reading for a show in, uh, last year, just before the pandemic. 
Hmm. And I was supposed to do some more stuff, but then the pandemic came along and we're all been, just been sitting here. I'm dying to get back and, and do more more uh, theatrical stuff, either as an actor or as like a producer, director and putting stuff together. I think that would be great fun. Oh, my to gosh. To do at this time in my life. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> I'm going to say a huge thank you. Oh, my gosh, Tony, we could talk for hours and hours and hours. All right, I'm talking to but... you. <laughs> <laughs> we'll we'll wrap this up for this juncture. Who knows? Maybe we'll have another interview one day. Um, thank you so much for being a part of the show. What a joy. My pleasure. I hope you enjoyed my chat with Tony. We really could have just kept on talking, and I am so excited to see what's next for him. A quick update as of this recording in April 2021, our center and gallery spaces in Montreal's Mile X neighborhood have reopened for Saturday Open House, which means every Saturday from 12 p.m. to 5 p.m. you can visit and see exhibitions we currently have up. For more details, check out any of our social channels or our website, neverapart.com, which also has access to all the exhibitions as 360-degree virtual tours. So wherever you may be listening from, you can see some really incredible art and learn about the extremely talented artists we are showing. Click on the Exhibitions tab at the top of the page to see what is currently on display. Be sure to subscribe, leave a comment or review on whichever platform you're listening through. And you can find me on Instagram at Jordan King Archive.